So, turning this on. Tonight I'm going to attempt to answer the question, what does a principled, authentic, meaningful, useful kind of caring for others look like? The principles of caring for others who are suffering. So tonight's talk has a lot of information. Uh, you may want to avail yourself later on uh, of the listening to it again. Everything is on the will be on the podcast site, which can be found at Dharma Punks with XNYC. If it's of so interest. So the Buddha noted that in life there are first arrow, arrow sufferings and second arrow sufferings. First arrow sufferings are the things that are inevitable, that are basically done to us by the world, other people around, that uh, we can do nothing about. They're unavoidable in life. The Buddha in the First Noble Truth gives a list that we can expect old age, sickness, suffering, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair that you will be separated from people you love and you'll be stuck at times with people you're not too fond about, that frustrating events will happen. I like to break it down into basic three, which is, one, we will experience some chronic physical pain. Two, we will experience losses and abandonments and separations from people that we love and that we seek relationships with. And three, we will often lose even what gives our life um, a sense of purpose or meaning. For instance, some people get purpose or fulfillment by playing in a band, and then the band breaks up, or they love coaching soccer or softball and the season ends, or... Uh, they love doing some form of dance and then they experience an accident where they can't dance. It's very possible in life to not only lose people but to lose access to that which brings a sense of authentic, uh, principled, aspirational uh, meaning to one's life. So these three things can happen, but then we make these sufferings, these experiences, worse. And this is what the second arrow, where the second arrow comes in. The, the stuff we, by the habit of what the mind does, by our default settings, how we increase or make some of these inevitable experiences even worse. Basically, it boils down to things like avoidance, trying to avoid that which must happen. There's a lot of people who frantically try to avoid old age, uh, who take it personally, who try to go to great lengths to try to never age. Um, we might try to avoid at all costs difficult, con conflictual conversations. We might try to avoid unpleasant situations that are unavoidable. Another way we cause suffering is by taking setbacks in life personally. I will experience breakups, losses I have, I will continue to, so at some point in your life will you. 
there's nothing personal about my old age. There's nothing particularly personal about my grief, my sorrow, my lamentation. There's nothing particularly personal about the frustrating events, missing the subway on the way here, or uh, the fact that it is uh, snowing is not a personal affront to me. <laughs> it's just shit that happens. So we, when we take things personally, we isolate ourselves. We make it more difficult to share our, our emotional experience. If I take uh, a feeling of depression or sadness personally, I will feel less uh, motivated less confident to share it with you because I believe you won't understand. And thus I will continue to feel more and more isolated and more and more barren of hope. The third way I create needless suffering is taking things personal, uh, permanently. I mistake transient experience as lasting. For example, that first day of work where you go it sucks, you don't know anybody, everybody looks at you strangely, you have no clue what to do, you don't know where the bathroom is, you think, oh my God, I've totally fucked up. This will always suck. And of course it won't. It's the first day, you don't know anything. But the brain has a tendency to conflate ephemeral shit into lasting deluges of shit. <laughs> I should have thought more about that sentence. <laughs> so, uh, there's negativity bias, finally, which is the brain's tendency to highlight threats and under-highlight or under-emphasize opportunities and people that are available. We are set up to survive environments and situations that have long since passed, the brain, the human brain has not significantly kept up to pace with the changes in the world. We still live in brains that are remarkably similar to the brains that people who lived 40,000 years ago out in the Serengeti, where you were more likely to become someone's meal than their friend when you ran into a stranger. Your brain is set up to look for uh, things and people to attack. And so even though you now live in as what Steven Pinker calls the safest time in human history, and that is actually statistically true, even though we have genocides and racist uh, violence all the time, we still do live in the safest time to be a human being but we live in brains that look for and highlight threats. So these four things, avoidance, taking things personally, uh, viewing the ephemeral as permanent, and negativity bias, highlighting threats, uh, keeps us in very often uh, ongoing suffering. So how do we alleviate someone who is panicked, filled with lasting grief that is not uh, gradually uh, being processed? How do we help someone who is overwhelmed, frightened, suffering? Well, there are, I've broken it down into five basic tools. 
And before I offer them to you, I should say, you might reasonably ask, well, Josh, that's very nice, but who the fuck are you anyway? Uh, I've been a Buddhist teacher now for over a decade, of which time I've worked with practitioners now in literally the multiple hundreds of people who've come to work with me because of suffering their life. Before that, I brought meditation to halfway houses where people were released after being imprisoned. Um, so uh, I teach at a hospice training center, Zen Care, and I do work with, as well, people in hospice at times. Uh, so anyway, those are my credentials. Take them or leave them. Feel free to ignore anything I say. Um, so five ways to help people who are suffering. Number one, proximity. Human beings are pack animals. Our anterior cingulate cortex, which is the part of the brain that creates emotional pain, is directly uh, triggered by how connected, securely connected you feel to other people. We are pack animals. Our survival mm -hmm is enhanced by connectedness to other people. When we feel disconnected, we experience emotional pain. We experience dysphoric uh, states. When we feel someone is nearby us, uh, we generally feel safer. We generally experience an alleviation of whatever mood we are in. Now, this is most of the time. There are certain people who grew up in what's called uh, avoidant attachment styles with engulfing parents who never had enough space in their life, and they can find continual proximity to be an annoyance. So sometimes we have to be, in fact, we invariably have to be, uh, what I'll say is uh, take the clues that people are giving us about how much uh, proximity, how, many, how, many, how often they want access to other people. In my experience, simply asking or reading when someone's becoming visibly agitated gives me a clue when somebody who's avoidant doesn't want to be, uh, doesn't need any more uh, care or attention. Other people grow up in preoccupied attachment styles and they are very, very nervous about people leaving or abandoning them. It's, you could be with them and they would still be worried, oh, when are you going to leave? Uh, the most important thing for people who are preoccupied is to be regular, to be willing to establish a sense that you will show up and continue to do so that you do not act in a completely unpredictable fashion. So that's proximity. It's simply being present. The second is attunement, and that's the ability to let somebody know that they are being seen, taken in, noticed. We human beings, from the very moment we're born, the infant looks to see if the caretaker is paying attention. And when the infant sees that the mother is monitoring it, it actually feels a sense of ease. It, there's a reduction in cortisol 
just by being seen, that's the first way in life that beyond proximity that we feel secure. So having somebody take us in, not in a creepy way. (laughs) So it doesn't mean staring at someone. Attunement, Attunement means reliably bringing your your glance back to meet the other person's glance in a way that they will find predictable and reassuring. So I can talk to you and my eyes can drift, I can look around, but if you're making a salient point or if you're getting to the crux of the story or an emotional part of something you're relating and I bring my eyes back to you, you will feel attuned to. That's the key. So it's not about staring, but it is about again and again restoring connection visually. Sympathy is the capability of understanding the story that somebody is conveying to you. Now very often the stories that people who are suffering convey to you are extreme, outlandish, difficult to follow, they might not be logical because they're suffering. Certain people who've been traumatized can't even construct a coherent narrative of much of their life. But sympathy is the ability to stay present and to do our best to try to understand what is being presented. Now, before we move on to the last two, proximity, attunement, and sympathy ask a few things of me. One that I put aside my inner chatter and I pay attention. That I don't sit around while you're talking to me and figure out what I'm going to say in response. If I do that, I will be missing a lot of important cues, as we will see. If I'm sitting and thinking about what I want to say, I'm not going to truly make you feel tuned to. You'll sense that I've drifted away. You'll see in the micro-expressions of my face, you will unconsciously take in the tension in my body, the subtle clues and cues that people give to each other that we are no longer paying attention. So I need to be available when I'm with people who are suffering, not just physically, but literally my attention has to be given to them entirely. I do not, when I work with people, sit and figure out how I'm gonna, what I'm going to say in response. I allow them to speak, I take it in, and then I pause and I offer my response. Now, this is also really important to understand because uh, the next two involve really digging beneath the surface Mentalizing is the capability of looking beneath what people are saying to me and finding their emotional state that's causing them to behave in the way they're behaving. When people suffer, they will often say and do things that they don't generally mean, by which I am indicating that when we suffer, when we're in emotional pain, Generally, the frontal lobe of the left hemisphere shuts down, making us far more um, vulnerable to expressing violent or fearful impulses. If I grew up in a dismissive attachment style, 
what I would tend to do when suffering would be to push you away. Even though you want to be of help, I would very easily feel crowded by you. I would feel that you don't care. I would feel frustrated by your presence, and I would become angry and say something to try to make you leave. I would be constantly testing you. And I would, uh, and very little you do would be uh, sufficient. If I grew up in a fundamentally preoccupied attachment style, I would be willing to drop my boundaries and say anything to win your approval or keep you around, even though it didn't really mean what I was feeling deep down inside. I would be just trying to make you happy with me. If I was fearful, avoidant, I might just simply uh, completely shut down. There's so many ways my early childhood programming can rear up and make me say things or behave in ways that really actually conceal what I'm feeling. So much of early attachment is about keeping at bay defensively, not showing to people our authentic, deep feelings. Because attachment is about the feeling that we're going to be abandoned. And attachment styles very often, except for the secure ones, are about being willing to do anything and say anything to keep ourselves from being abandoned again. The dismissive just pushes people away because they don't want to get close and be abandoned. The person who's preoccupied will just keep pulling and will never feel it's enough. So to mentalize, what I need to do is to stop being, while I'm taking in and understanding what you're saying, I'm also reserving some of my awareness to see what is the emotional activation that's really going on. Beneath your anger, I might be able to see fear. Beneath your confidence, I might be able to locate insecurity. How do I do this? Well, one, through practice, but two, so much is conveyed in people's tone of voice, the expressions on their face, how their body is held, how their face sometimes betrays. All of these nonverbal expressions can completely say something utterly different than what is being communicated to me through words. So it's a very, very challenging experience offering care in that I, one, need to hear the content of what's being conveyed, but at times I need to reach beneath it and see what it might be concealing from me. This is important because people will, again, very often assume that I, as somebody who provides care, will fall back into the same patterns that their parents or other people in their lives. They'll project onto me the same expectations. So I need to know, by staying fully aware, open, receptive, all the things that are being conveyed to me, not just the language about what they're saying, and be sympathetic to the extent that I'll say, wow, yes, if I perceived things that way, I would be very sad. But also to be able to mentalize, which is what I'm seeing beneath what you're saying, is I feel the presence of some frustration or some 
unacknowledged fear. Do you experience that, or am I off base? Finally, the last characteristic is empathy. Empathy is my ability to feel what somebody else is feeling. Now, empathy is a very challenging proposition. If it's done well, it communicates to somebody that they're not alone. And their right hemisphere, which is unconscious, will pick up the fact that I'm mirroring back to them via, via my gestures, my facial expressions, via the, way, the tone of my voice. Everything about me will convey that I get it, if I can empathize, if I can show somebody that I feel, to some degree, their loneliness, I can make them feel less alone. However, the downside of this is, is that many of us are very susceptible to what's known as emotion contagion, which means if we are too empathetic, we can feel ourselves being brought down by others. We can feel our moods, which might have been buoyant and upbeat before we encounter someone who's suffering. We might find afterwards that we're tired, sad, frustrated, despairing ourselves. So, the first part of the talk was just establishing the, the basics, which is stay present, um, uh, to attune, to sympathize by taking in the story, mentalize, which means to look beneath at times and see if there's a different emotion being signaled, and to be open to empathize, which is to feel that emotion that's going on. Now, all of these do not require or need what I call facile, uh, palliative, uh, quick uh, solutions fixes. It's a human tendency that we all have, and it's understandable, that when we are around suffering, we want to say the thing that will make it all be okay. At funerals, it's a universal compulsion to try to say something along the lines of, well, he lived a long life, or at least he got to go to Spain before he <laughs> keeled over and died suddenly traumatically to you. <laughs> and in my fast little easy way, I'm going to say just the right sentence that's going to make you stop grieving and so that you'll see the bright side and that you won't have to suffer anymore. Because we find sadness and suffering really difficult to be around. And people can grieve authentically for a long time. And there can be a desire to get rid of it. And that's exactly what the impulse be behind finding the thing to say to make it all better is. It seems like we're authentically caring, but I propose that very often beneath that urge is a secret anxiety about being around people who are suffering and a desire to say something that will get rid of it. Moreover, I propose, I'm proposing a lot of shit tonight, <laughs> that it is far more courageous to sit and allow people to express and, and signal 
their emotional states without trying to solve or fix, without trying to get rid of what they're feeling. If I do offer things, which I do, I will never offer a prescriptive, you should leave this relationship or, your, or good riddance to that person or whatever. As we'll see, I will offer tools, a variety of tools, and say, these are the tools that I've used. They may or may not work. You can explore them if you'd like, but I'll still be here whatever you're experiencing. Now, back to the issue of the uh, emotion contagion. How do we, as people who provide care at times, who show up for people who are suffering, how do we not allow that process to create uh, an emotional echo or awake in our minds where we will be brought down to the extent that we will wind up suffering ourselves. There must have been a more elegant way to say that, but whatever. How the fuck do we show up for other people without suffering ourselves? How about that? Okay, so a few practices. One, relaxing the body and breath while you're around someone who's suffering. You can still take in what they're saying, you can still sympathize, you can still attune your glance. I can be present with you, open. I can not fill my mind up with chatter, but at the same time, I can make sure that my belly is soft, my out-breath is very long, my shoulders are relaxed. If my body is relaxed and at ease, when you present your despair, your frustration to me, I will have a container that can hold it without being completely taken over. But if I am tight, tense, resistant, I will either not take you in, or if I do take you in, it will consume me. So in relaxing, lengthening the out-breath, and in uh, softening the belly, the shoulders, opening the chest, relaxing the facial muscles, I can create a container that can hold other people's challenging experience without it necessarily consuming me. The second thing I do uh, that really helps me when I do this work is I name the emotion that's present. This helps other people know what emotion they're experiencing. Very often people don't, surprisingly. And two, when I remind myself, when I call attention to the emotion that's being presented, it helps me somehow uh, pull myself or detach enough that I don't find it overcoming me. There's something about saying, what I hear you saying sounds like you're experiencing sadness or that you're feeling um, anger, or that you're feeling um, uh, disconnected, isolated, despairing. You're feeling you're feeling uh, vulnerable in life. When I express these emotions, it actually helps me oddly from falling into those very same emotions. I'm not sure I can explain the actual mechanism of why. It's just something I've learned from experience. I have a ritual meditation that I do at the end of every day before I move on in my life. If I don't do this ritual practice of sitting, breathing, 
releasing, noting what's in the body, noting the presence of any emotions that are there, uh, allowing myself to quietly process the experience, then I very often carry very often people's sadness around with me. The fourth tool is a wisdom tool. The Buddha called it upekka or equanimity. Equanimity is the constant reflection that at the end of the day, the bulk of what causes lasting suffering in other people is the result of how they've used their mind over a significant period of time. I can offer tools in my presence, but I cannot rescue anyone. I very often am in situations due to my own background and their background, or for some reason I reach a threshold of where or how much uh, in any session I can accomplish, or you know, with somebody who's just completely stuck, I might realize, okay, I can't be of help here. And equanimity is the permission we give ourselves to let go, to know when we've done enough, to not continue trying, to pull our awareness away, to take care of ourselves. The Buddha, in so many suttas, says that if I allow my compassion to cause me suffering, if I allow my caring to pull me into stress and suffering, that's not a very good deal. All I've done is really add one more person who's suffering to the world. So if I'm not taking care of myself, if I don't know when to pull away with love, if I don't know how to acknowledge the limits of how much I can help another being, which is frankly just a little... If I don't know how to acknowledge that, then I will carry around a lot of frustration. I would want a really talented heart surgeon to be capable of meeting with people who needed his operation. But if there was somebody he couldn't help, I would want him to be both empathetic, but not so empathetic and not so caught up trying to figure a way to help that person, that he couldn't help all the other people that he could save. In the same way as human beings, we cannot get so hooked by one person's suffering that it pulls us away from all the care that we could show elsewhere. Very often, I've noticed that people get hooked by people in their family or by ex-lovers, and they'll get pulled into a suffering that they are incapable of alleviating. And they're not doing the other person any favors. In fact, if I stay trying to help somebody that I have some former relationship with or some uh, kind of relationship with, if I stay there and keep struggling and don't pull away, then I will, in essence, I'm enabling the person who's suffering. At a certain point, it's up to them to see that it's not working, and I help them do that by pulling away. Finally, the Buddha, as I said, uh, or I indicated, saw 
lots of underlying causes to why we suffer. The avoidance, the taking things personally, the believing things that are passing will last forever. The, uh, what was the fourth one that I put together? It was very intelligent. Oh yeah, negativity bias. The tendency to highlight threats. So, one tool that the Buddha offered that I find very often, uh, often very useful to offer to people is the practice of insight, which is breaking down our suffering into the components of it. Right now, if I'm suffering, I can see what's happening with the breath, my body, what's happening with my mind, the energy levels, how awake I feel. So every time I have a thought that causes me stress and worry, a feeling, let's say, of being alone, that nobody understands something in my life, when that thought comes up, instead of just paying attention to it or arguing with it, which is what people have a tendency to do, I can investigate how does that thought affect the breath, the body, my feeling states. How does it affect the level of awareness? How do I feel when this thought comes up? In doing this, the Buddha provides a very, very valuable tool for people to investigate their thoughts that cause suffering from a different angle. It's very often one of the tools that I offer. I also will offer people who are suffering the Buddha's recollections, and I've, you can look them up. I've given many talks on the Ten Recollections. These are reflections that rebalance the mind from fear and vulnerability towards <coughs> feelings of security, feelings of connectedness. They're reflections on our virtue, reflections on how appreciated we are, how connected we are. I very often will offer people meta-meditations, which is essentially simple phrases that we repeat to replace stressful thoughts with thoughts that don't cause suffering, such as the phrase, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. There are many other tools that I offer in mentoring and in my practice with people. But I never offer it in a prescriptive fashion, in the sense that this is going to be the thing that works. It worked for me. It has to work for you. If I do that, I set the, the other person up to feeling failure or to feeling even more despondent if it doesn't work. I simply offer tools as this is what helped me consider it or not. I never judge people who don't use the tools. I find that if I guilt or create an expectation that people use a tool that I offer, that it creates a likelihood that they'll avoid it. So I feel that that's a lot of information. Uh, to summarize, the core foundations of care are proximity, showing up, making sure people feel seen, making sure people feel understood by taking it in, not falling into our inner monologues, uh, looking for emotional states beneath what's being said, understanding that people often act in ways that they don't mean. Mentalizing allows me to forgive when people act unskillfully, which people who are suffering will do. 
and empathy, opening up to the feelings that are, or emotions that are being expressed by others, feeling them myself. And I can do this by constantly relaxing the body, naming the emotions that are present, at the end of the day have a ritual meditation or practice that allows me to release the energies I've picked up and to reflect on equanimity. There are only so much I can help. And the moment I start feeling that my own peace of mind is being damaged by trying to care for others, I've gone too far and have to reel myself back in. So I hope there was something valuable somewhere in there. Thank you for listening. So, if we are to open to inspiration, intuition, somatic wisdom, uh, we have to know how to quiet the thinking mind, which is going to be the focus of tonight's meditation, very old meditation. Uh, I'm going to guide using a phrase, namo tasa. This is a very important phrase in the Buddhist canon. It's basically in honor of the Buddha's awakening, is what it means. But uh, I like it also because in English it doesn't mean a thing. So uh, that is good because we don't then get caught up thinking about what each phrase means. And the way this meditation works is very, very simple. You use that phrase or any phrase you'd like. Don't feel constrained to use Namo Tassa. Use a phrase that you like. It could be, may I be peaceful. It's useful if the, bra- if the phrase has uh, an even number of syllables or can be said in an even numbered way because I like to align it with the breath. So one syllable on the in-breath, like na. One syllable on the out-breath, mo. In-breath, ta. Out-breath, sa. Namo, ta, sa. You could use any four-syllable phrase you like. I like Donald Duck, you could use. (laughs) This is really weird. (laughs) <laughs> what am I doing now that I'm so the goal of this meditation is you start out uh, repeating the phrase even faster than the breath is because you want to quiet the mind so you repeat the phrase as quickly as you need so that thoughts do not intrude so at first, the phrase might be like, namo tassa, namo tassa, or whatever phrase you're using. May I be peaceful, may I be peaceful. And you keep reciting it in your mind, in your thoughts, as a way to keep the intrusive thoughts out. And then what you do is uh, very gradually slow down the phrase so that eventually it's aligned to the breath. Na mo ta sa. And you can even say the phrases shorter or longer. 
And the goal is to space out the syllables so that there's quiet in the mind. The more you space out the syllables, the more period of quiet, the slower, the softer you recite the, the syllables in your mind, the quieter the mind becomes. Sometimes though, the mind will crank back up thoughts, and you'll need to speed up the process or make in your mind the <laughs> phrase louder. So it's a creative exercise. The phrase becomes a feedback mechanism that lets you know if you are at peace. If you completely forget the phrase, it means your mind's wandered, and all you do then is just bring it back. So closing the eyes. This is a very, very, this is a 2,500-year-old Buddhist Theravadin meditation. So uh, just another one of our old-school <coughs> meditations. So closing the eyes, and let's take three breaths just to bring ourselves all together, all in line in the same room. So as you pull in that first breath, pull up your shoulders towards your ears and hold in the breath and then breathe out through your your mouth and release the shoulders. Let the shoulders drop as heavily as they can. And then... uh, So another breath in, pulling the stomach and tightening the belly so that you suddenly look like you've lost 10 pounds. And then... When you breathe out, soften the belly. Wonderful. Big fat bellies. And then one last synchronized (coughs) in-breath, and then squinching the muscles of the face, the muscles of the arms, tightening everything. And when you breathe out, relax. Everything. So bringing the awareness into the body, which means letting go of the image you have of your body, and just find a set or field of sensations that let you know if your body is breathing in or breathing out. While some people use the feeling of the air entering the tip of the nose, I prefer to use personally the sensations of the chest expanding and contracting, or the belly lifting, receding, a feeling of energy flowing up and down the body. There are many ways to feel the energy of the breath. And while you do that, start whatever phrase you like. So between just breathing and repeating the phrase, if it's namo tasa, namo tasa. You can also add in an awareness of sounds from the room around you as well to create space in the mind. The mind feels rather tight and claustrophobic. So between the breath and the sounds and the phrase, <coughs> you're actually giving your mind quite a lot to do to keep thoughts right now from the forefront of awareness.
So gradually begin to slow down the phrase. If you like, you can align it with the breath as we talked about. Or even make it one syllable for every in-breath and out-breath so that there's a lot of space in between the syllables. See how far apart you can space each syllable before thoughts start to creep in to the silence.
So at this point, you can continue on with this concentration practice. But you can also, if you'd like, move on to an inside practice. If so, allow the phrase you've been using to develop focused, (coughs) settled mind to dissipate. And you can even allow the breath awareness to move to the back of a consciousness and then begin to note without forcing or trying to think or trying to bring up anything to mind just allow whatever wants to wander and pass through your awareness without clinging by which I mean climbing into anything, a thought or an image, and giving it more content. Just allow things to arise and pass and note. Like a room with two open doors, anything floating through without being stuck or stopped, or you don't even need to comment You might become aware of body sensations. Random images might appear. And really, the effort comes from keeping yourself outside of whatever thoughts, which generally work by pulling us away from the presence with all the sensations that are going on and pulling us into what the Buddha called fabrications. So you can still use, if you'd like, to keep yourself outside of thoughts, the breath, or the sounds of the room. But just know what wants to pass through without suppressing anything, without adding to anything.
So we're going to start the transition from the meditation. And before opening our eyes, I like to, myself, in my own practice, cultivate recognition of my efforts. Even if the meditation was difficult, you found the mind wandering around, or you found yourself sleepy, It was difficult to establish any focus, the mind felt scattered, or it doesn't really matter. The goal is to end each practice with a recognition of the virtue of your practice. Simply sitting quietly, trying to develop peace within, trying to forge a source of tranquility that is unconditionally available, a source of happiness that doesn't put you into competition with others or cause conflict, a source of ease that doesn't use up the world's resources, a source of virtue in the sense that you do not harm anyone. And so your practice is blameless. You have something that's very precious in your life. And it's always worth reminding ourselves so that by ending each meditation with a sense of the benefits of our practice, it makes it most likely that we'll return to it rather than ending with needless, pointless criticism or frustration. And as always, remember that when you hear the bowl and it's time to slowly open the eyes, try to do it in a gradual way. When sight floods into the mind, it will want to push all awareness of the body out of your cognizance. So it's worth setting an intention to keep some of the mind at home. As the Buddha said, leaving ourselves unaware of the body is like leaving our front door wide open. 